Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Thank you very much, Sarah, for reading for us. Please, can I ask you to keep that passage open on page 1089? We'll be referring to that uh, quite a bit over the next few minutes. Um, It is great to see you all here. Uh, If you don't know me, my name's Chris Tufnell. I'm on the staff here. Um, Let me add my welcome to Andy's. Um, It is brilliant to see you all, and you have such good voice this evening as well. I thought I had damaged my diaphragm in the second song. I was singing uh, so loud, you were whipping me up. But um, it really is great to see you all here. Um, Just uh, as we begin, let me just say a prayer for us. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word tonight, may we see Jesus and believe in him. Amen. There is something very wonderful um, and powerful about being taken to see for yourself the place where something happened. Um, I remember as a fairly young child, um, very vividly, my dad taking me back to the village where his his parents had spent uh, the last years of their life. And he showed me the cottage that they lived in. Uh, It was one of a a row of terraced cottages, uh, very idyllic really, gardens at the front, picket fences, quiet country lane. 
Um, and as we walked away from the cottage, we went uh, across the road, and I remember it very well. Uh, we got to a lamppost on the other side of the road, and my dad stopped, and he turned around, and he said, it was standing right here. My dad was just by the garden fence. Standing right here was the last time I saw my dad alive. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really poignant, really powerful to have stood there um, and heard that memory. Um, Another time, I remember a friend taking me to Broad Street in Oxford. It's a pedestrianised street, and they took me to the middle of the road, and there's an X um, on the road. Some of you may know this. And they said to me uh, that it's right here on this spot in 1555 that Latimer and Ridley, two Christian martyrs, were burned at the stake for holding Christian beliefs that they wouldn't uh, deny And I remember thinking, wow, you know, I've heard about that, but there's something about being here and seeing it and thinking it was right here that that happened. Uh, One more example. Uh, um, About 10 years ago, I went on holiday to Turkey, and I went to the ancient city of Ephesus. Um, It's been wonderfully um, kind of uh, excavated and preserved, and there's a huge amphitheater in Ephesus. It seats about 25,000 people in great condition, and you can go in. And um, uh, in Acts chapter 19 in the Bible, there's a scene that takes place in the amphitheater in Ephesus. And we opened up Acts 19, and we read it there, thinking this is where it happened. It happened right here, 2,000 years ago. Something very powerful about being taken to see for yourself the place where something happened. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we can go to the place where it happened, but we can't see for ourselves the events of that morning. We could go to the place. We know that the resurrection happened just outside Jerusalem. I've done my research. That's 2,353 miles from this room. 123 degrees on the compass, if you're interested. Let's be honest, you weren't, were you? But there you go. There's no X on the spot. We can't be quite that precise. But we could stand outside Jerusalem and say, within a mile of here is where it happened. But even if we did that, as powerful as that might be, we wouldn't be able to see for ourselves the things that happened that morning. We need someone who did to tell us. And that's exactly why the Apostle John wrote his gospel. We can't see, but he did And so his gospel is an invitation to come and see what he and the other eyewitnesses saw, to see through their eyes. That's why this chapter we've uh, just heard read is so unusually detailed, so careful with its details, because John wants us to be able to envisage what they saw and see it through their eyes. This evening it's as though John puts an arm around your shoulder and says, come and see through our eyes. Let me take you to the place and tell you what we saw. And as John does that with us, there are two things we see about the resurrection. It's rational and it's joyful. It's rational and it's joyful. Come and see. This chapter begins with the sight of Mary making her way to the tomb. Take a look down at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. And when she got there, she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She panicked, assuming, of course, that this was the work of grave robbers, something not uncommon at the time. And so, verse 2, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, when we um, hear that through this chapter, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, the gospel author's way of referring to himself. So just bear that in mind. 
Uh, She came uh, to them and she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Implicit in her cry is, come on, put down your cereal, come on, come and see. And that's exactly what they do. Take a look at verse three. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, that's John again, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Do you see all the details? Upon getting to the tomb, this is what John did, verse five. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Details, details, details. Can you imagine being there with John, leaning in and peering into the dimly lit tomb and seeing the cloths that had been around Jesus' body now lying there? We don't know why he didn't go inside, whether it was out of fear or out of respect, perhaps. Whatever the reason, it didn't stop Simon Peter. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb, apparently without any hesitation. He saw the strips of linen lying there. That word translated saw, it doesn't mean kind of glancing at something. It means pouring over something, staring at it, analyzing what you're seeing. Simon Peter's standing there surveying the scene, considering what he's seeing. What am I seeing? He's being rational. You know when you're watching a uh, crime drama on TV and you're looking at the scene of the crime, there are normally kind of blue lights flashing somewhere about the place. A police officer may be standing on the door outside and then some senior investigator turns up and they lift up the police tape that's cordoning off the area. They go straight to the scene of the crime and start looking around for clues. And you, uh, as you look, you can see them kind of, you can almost hear their brains and the cogs working, can't you? They don't touch anything, at least not to begin with. They want to preserve the evidence. They just look. They survey the scene and consider the possibilities of what might have happened here. That's what Simon Peter's doing as he stands there in the tomb. He's looking, he's considering, he's seeing. What am I seeing? He was probably thinking to himself something like this. If grave robbers had done this, there's no way they would have taken the time to remove the linen from the body. Why would they? Especially since the linen is one of the valuable things. But if the authorities that were opposed to Jesus had taken the body to, I don't know, prevent superstitions rising up, why would they have taken the cloths off the body? That would have only encouraged superstitions. That makes no sense. If some other kind of follower of Jesus had taken him, why would they have dishonored the body by taking it away naked? None of these options makes any sense. And as he looks, he sees a clue. Look at verse six. He saw the strips of linen lying there, and then this extra detail in verse seven, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. What am I seeing Well, this doesn't look like the scene of a crime at all. There's no sign of a hurried exit from the tomb. It looks like someone left in their own time. And John tells us that's exactly what he concluded when he saw it. Writing about himself in verse eight, John says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. No conversation, no collaboration. What they were seeing spoke for itself. 
For John, the scene left no doubt in his mind as to what had happened. He saw and believed. Verse 9 says they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That is, up until this moment, they hadn't understood. But now he saw and believed. Believed that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. You see, for you and I today, to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not some crazy leap of blind faith, as some would think. It's deeply rational. Let me give you three ways it's rational. Firstly, it's based on evidence. John and Simon Peter stood there. They saw the empty tomb and they considered the options. This wasn't the work of grave robbers or the authorities or anyone else. Someone had left in their own time, leaving the linen they no longer needed. If it had been in the authorities, then in the following days, when people did start claiming to have seen Jesus alive again, they would have produced the body to squash the rumors. But they didn't, because they couldn't. There's no other explanation for the empty tomb than that Jesus rose from the dead. People have searched ever since for a better explanation in vain. Secondly, it's rational for us to believe in the resurrection because they weren't expecting it. I've heard people say today that while today we're very deeply rational kind of people, back then they were kind of all superstitious, and so these grief-stricken disciples would have been relatively easily persuaded that Jesus had risen from the dead, quite quick to believe it. But the evidence is to the contrary. Even though Jesus had clearly and repeatedly told them that he was going to die and rise again, they weren't expecting it because it was completely outside of their view of what was possible. If Mary had been expecting it, then when she came to the tomb that morning and saw the stone removed from the entrance, she'd have thought, ah, maybe it's happening just like he said it would. But not a moment of it. She runs straight off the only conclusion in her mind that the body had been stolen by grave robbers. If the disciples had been expecting it, then they would have been waiting outside the tomb on Saturday night, wouldn't they, in their sleeping bags with a thermos of tea? But they weren't. They were back home. A resurrection was so far removed from what they were expecting that whatever it took to persuade them that it was true must have been undeniable. And so it was. The scene of the empty tomb and then Jesus appearing first to Mary and then the other disciples. They touch him. He eats food. He spends 40 days with them. He appears to over 500 people at once. He is physically, bodily alive with them. They believe it not because they were gullible, not because they were expecting it, but because of the sheer freight of evidence. Thirdly, it's rational because the first person to see Jesus was a woman. You might ask, well, how is that evidence for the resurrection? Because in that society, women were held in such low regard that their testimony was virtually worthless, so much so that it wouldn't have even been admissible in a court of law. If John or the the disciples were making this up, trying to peddle a myth, well, there are lots of flaws with that theory, but here's the first. Putting a woman as the first witness of Jesus' resurrection would have sabotaged their own project. Her testimony would have been disregarded. So why do all the Gospels say Mary was the first person to see Jesus alive? Why would they write that, since it's so unhelpful to their cause? Only one possible reason, because it was true. 
There are so many more reasons to why believing the resurrection is rational. These are just three that I'm taking from these verses. If you want to read more, uh, grab a, a copy of this uh, book on your way out. It's called The Case uh, for Easter. Um, the author, his uh, wife became a Christian. This is, I think, back in the 70s, and he really didn't like that. He's an investigative journalist, uh, so he went about to disprove that the resurrection ever happened. He became a Christian. You can buy his book. In fact, I've been told it's for free if you're going to read it tonight. Um, they're over in the atrium. If you're not going to read it, it's a quid. Um, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, The resurrection is rational. They came, they saw, they reasoned and believed. It's rational, but it's also joyful. Take a look down at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Mary's crying because someone has taken Jesus' body away. And that mattered because she loved him and she had lost him. And his body was the last point of contact that she had with him. His life had been taken by death, and as if to rub salt into the wound, his body had now been taken by someone. Her grief is because of what she's lost. Not just a body, her friend, her teacher, her Messiah. And now she couldn't even honor his grave, so she stood outside the tomb crying. Mary's problem is the human problem. It's our problem. Because every loving relationship you and I will ever have ends up here with someone by a grave crying. Death is what the Bible describes as the last enemy. It takes away life and it takes away loving relationships. And without the resurrection, we not only have to face death, but we have to face it without hope. That's Mary's situation outside the tomb. Confronted with death, having lost any connection to Jesus, and without any hope. But hope was closer than she realized. All this time, she still hadn't actually looked into the tomb. But we see in verse 11 that at last she bent over to look into the tomb, just as John had done. But what she saw wasn't linen, but angels, two of them, seated where Jesus' body had been. And then they ask her this question, why are you crying? But their question isn't so much a a genuine inquiry. It's more like a a gentle wake-up call. Why are you crying? It's as though they're saying, there's no need to cry. Can't you see what's happened here? What you're looking at isn't a robbery, it's a resurrection. But all they actually say is why are you crying? And she replies in verse 13, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. She doesn't know where Jesus is. That's the issue here. She doesn't know where Jesus is. And at this, with the words having only just left her lips, verse 14 says, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. There he is. The one she's looking for, the answer to all of her tears 
but it says she did not realize it was Jesus. She's seeing, but she doesn't really see. And so Jesus repeats the angel's question, woman, why are you crying? And he adds to the irony, asking, who is it you're looking for? Knowing, of course, that the answer is him. She's looking for him. She's crying because she wants him, but she doesn't realize it's him. Maybe the light was poor. Maybe her eyes were too full of tears. But the real reason Mary didn't realize it was Jesus becomes clear when we consider more carefully his question to her. Who is it you're looking for? I used to know a policeman who on one occasion had to arrest his neighbor. Um, and uh, they, they lived a few doors down, but they knew each other reasonably well. And yet through the whole arrest, this neighbor didn't realize they were being arrested by someone that they knew. They weren't drunk, but they didn't see it because they just weren't expecting to see someone they knew in police uniform. Mary was actually looking for Jesus. But she didn't see him because she wasn't expecting to see him alive. Who is it you're looking for? For Jesus, of course. But more specifically, she was looking for a dead Jesus, not a living one. As great as Mary's devotion to Jesus was, her estimate of him was far too small. She thought his crucifixion was the end and that the grave could contain him. Her view of Jesus was far too small. And so she's so busy looking for this small Jesus that she misses the real Jesus right there before her eyes. And so verse 15, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Well, enough is enough. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. In chapter 10, Jesus described himself as a good shepherd And he said, the good shepherd calls his sheep and they know his voice. Here Jesus calls her by name, Mary. And she knows that voice. Verse 16, she turned toward him and at last she saw what she had been missing. And what a sight he must have been. And what a moment it must have been to see his smiling face. She had seen him die on the cross. She had seen him laying in the tomb. And now she was seeing him there alive again before her very eyes. I imagine that time stood still for a moment as the implications of what she was seeing poured through her mind like a river. Jesus has broken down the doors of death. He's proven beyond doubt that he's God. Everything he said is now vindicated. This changes everything forever. He's far bigger than I thought. In an instant, Mary's tears are turned to shouts of joy. And the only word that can escape from her lips is Rabboni, which means teacher. Anguish and despair are swallowed up by astonishment and delight when she sees his face. And that's why the resurrection is wonderful news for us today. God saw a helpless world, hopeless in the face of death. Death brought about by our own sin. And he sent his son Jesus into the world to die on a cross, bearing the punishment for all of our sin. That's what makes Good Friday so good. The punishment for sin fell on Jesus, so it need never fall on us if we just put our trust in him. But if Jesus had stayed dead in the tomb, there would have been no comfort for Mary in her tears and none for us in the face of sin and death. 
he would have simply joined the long list of people who have said great things and then died, leaving behind disappointed and disenchanted followers. But by rising from the dead, Jesus proved that he was God, that at the cross he did indeed take the punishment for our sin and that now, alive again, he had undone the power of death, that last enemy. He promised that if we trust in him, he would take us through death to eternal life. And he opened the service with a verse that said that. Now we can believe him. Now we know it's true. For Mary, as she stood outside the tomb crying, the answer to her tears was closer than she knew. He was standing right there in front of her, but she failed to recognize him because she was looking for a small Jesus. And she would never have found him if he hadn't come and found her and called her name Mary. And as she lifted up her eyes and saw him standing there, she realized he was far bigger than she had ever dreamed. It may be that you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian. Thanks for being here. It is great to have you with us. Let these verses dispel any notion that you may have of a small Jesus. I think many people look into Christian things and find nothing because they're looking for a small Jesus. Someone to kind of give them something to do on the weekend, uh, maybe to make them spiritually kind of a little bit more rounded, to enhance their lives a little bit. A kind of a spiritual version of doing Pilates or eating more vegetables. That is a hopelessly small ambition for Jesus. You won't find that kind of Jesus because he doesn't exist. He didn't come to make your life a little bit better. He came to deal with your biggest needs, to take the punishment for your sins so that you can have an unhindered relationship with God and to give you eternal life in which to enjoy him. He's so much bigger than we think. Jesus says to you tonight, as he did to Mary, who is it you're looking for? Knowing full well the answer that perhaps has evaded even you, that it's him, that it was always him. He is the one you've been looking for all your life. He calls you by name, and if you will just look up and see him for all he is, and put your trust in him, he will deal with your biggest needs, sin forgiven, and wipe away your biggest tears, giving you hope in the face of even death. If you've come tonight and seen him for all he is and believe that he died and rose again for you, you can put your trust in him right now and be forgiven and guaranteed life beyond the grave. Come and speak to me afterwards or one of us that's wearing a badge if you'd like to do that. Or if you're not quite at that point but you would like to look more closely at Jesus, who he is and what it would be like to follow him today, uh, you'll see on the inside page of the news sheet that you were given, but also uh, there are these flyers around the building for encounters. That starts on the 3rd of May. Uh, there are some details about what exactly that is on this flyer. Uh, but if, you'd, uh, if you're interested, come and talk to one of us about it. Uh, sign up. Uh, we'd love to join you, uh, you, you to join us. And if you are a, a Christian here tonight, the resurrection proves that Jesus has in day, indeed paid the price for your sin, and mine, and broken death's hold on you and me. We may still feel the, the sorrow of sin's presence in our lives, but we will never pay the penalty for it. 
And we will still one day come face to face with death for ourselves, but we can do so knowing that Jesus has broken down the doors of death and flung open the gates to eternal life. And when one day we walk out through those doors and in through those gates, we, like Mary, will see for ourselves his face and hear his voice, and he will turn all our tears into shouts of joy. Hope is no longer scarce. There's enough to go round. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Removed as it would turn out, not so Jesus could get out, but so we could see in. Jesus was able to miraculously leave or enter rooms. Uh, Indeed, that's exactly what he does in the verses that follow those we've been looking at tonight. The very fact that the stone was moved is itself an invitation from God to come and see. It's like the first day a, a museum opens and throws the doors open to the public. It says, come and see. What do you see when you come to the empty tomb? When you look through the eyes of those eyewitnesses, what do you see? Bono from the band U2 sings these words. The stone, it has been moved. The rule has been disproved. The grave is now a groove. All debts are removed. Oh, can't you see what love has done? Oh, can't you see what love has done? Verse 8, John saw and believed. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. The news of that first Easter morning has thundered around the world, even 2,353 miles away, through 2,000 years nearly, and it's reached this very room and this very night. It's the news that changes everything forever. Oh, can't you see what love has done? May each of us come, see, believe, and like those first witnesses, leave rejoicing. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the joyful news of Easter. The news of Jesus who defeated sin at the cross and death at the empty tomb. Thank you for a big Jesus who deals with our greatest needs, who has come and found us and called us by name. We thank you simply for Jesus. We marvel at him tonight, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we long for the day when we will see his face and he will turn all our tears into shouts of joy. As we wait for that day, keep us trusting in him and following him, our crucified yet living Lord. Amen.